Hello and welcome to NC State's Audio Abstract. I'm your host, Tracy Peake. The Holy Grail for Teachers is a classroom full of engaged and attentive students. But sometimes, the classroom environment itself can be a barrier to that outcome. We're speaking today with DeLeon Gray, Associate Professor of Education Psychology and Equity here at NC State, about the concept of belonging and the effect it can have on black and Latino students in particular. Welcome to Leon. Thank you for having me. I'm very glad that you're here. So let's get started by defining what you mean when you talk about a feeling of belonging in a classroom. What does that look like? So belonging, uh, according to my field, educational psychology, means acceptance, respect, inclusion, and support. So it's the sense of psychological membership that a student may have to their classroom or school community. So I'm thinking about belonging in terms of the school environment primarily. Now, uh, there are decades of research that uh, talk about the impact that belonging can have uh, on people, whether it's uh, uh, cognitive decrements when you don't experience belonging, or uh, you know better health conditions when you do experience belonging. But that also translates into the school environment. But it is also uniquely experienced by students from marginalized communities and from marginalized identity groups. And the reason why is because there may have been historical experiences that people before them might have had around uh, place or being told even physically, if we think back to the 50s, 60s, or even before, hey, you don't belong here in this school. But there are still historical traces of that to this day. So by belonging, in my definition according to my framework, there are three main areas of belonging, and I think of them at a structural level. So one is this idea of interpersonal opportunity structures, is, which is what teachers typically think about, which is uh, relations to one another and connections to one another, um, interpersonal bonds, if you will. But then there's also the notion of interpersonal opportunity structures and instructional opportunity structures. Instructional opportunity structures are a chance to uh, get in touch with your ancestral heritage and or your community through your learning experiences in the classroom. The third is this idea of institutional opportunity structures, which is the uh, idea that I get to practice uh, being a citizen with full rights in this learning space, in this environment, in school. And the idea there is if we want students to be uh, uh, citizens and to push our country forward in the future, then they must have an opportunity to practice being citizens with rights inside of the school. And so that looks like, uh, you know, representation on different boards and committees that are really making decisions about how the school is run and what the school decides to do with its investment in the community. Now some, what are some of the examples in the classroom, and you touched on this a little bit, of a situation within a classroom that might negatively impact belonging, that might make a student feel as though they're being marginalized or, or othered, even though that may not be the intent of the instructor. So one of the first and easiest ways uh, I think about this question is around how a teacher responds to a student's mistakes that they may make. It's no doubt that we want students to be able to have learning experience and mistakes are a part of the learning process, but how we correct those can signal uh, safety 
or they can make students feel like the environment is unsafe for them or man should I even be in this environment so uh, an example of you know things on the negative end there would be if a student is having difficulty uh, you know making them feel like they are uh, somehow uh, deficient in a way for having some sort of difficulty you know um, and so but even in the way you provide assistance and support you know you know, would you like some extra support? Let me show you how to do this. Here's a way that I've seen other students do it. Or do you need some help? You know, that intonation, you know, can suggest that there's something wrong with me. So sometimes the very same approach, even if it has good intentions, can land differently on different students based on how it's delivered by an educator. Another example might be if the teacher is making all of the decisions that don't really reflect the way students uh, experience the world or think about things. So the more we engage students' expertise in the classroom, the more likely we are to allow them to feel like this environment is built especially for me. And the third uh, one that we can think of most easily is if we're talking about things that students don't think that they'll ever use in their life. Um, get me out of here. This is not an environment for me. I'm not being fed intellectually, and I don't see how this relates to my everyday experience. Um, but, you know, some other areas are if we're providing high standards for students, what are the guardrails emotionally that we're providing with encouragement to say that they can reach the high standards? Uh, getting uh, your English paper back with a bunch of red ink on it is something that can really be traumatizing for students. But what that red ink says about, you know, your potential and, you know, let's, let's achieve these standards, you can reach these standards, it really sets the bar. And finally, on the social and emotional bridging is very important. You know, so making connections with students' culture. Something as simple as allowing students to, to DJ and when you play music, music inside of the room, having other kids be in charge of the, the vibe that's established in the class. All of that can signal that this environment is for me and I should be here and I'm considered. Okay. Can we drill down um, a little bit on some of the examples you gave there where we're talking specifically about things that, like uh, a particular child's areas of expertise. Mm -hmm. So what would that look like you know, in a classroom? Yeah, so uh, that's a great question. There's a couple different ways. Mm -hmm. um, the first that comes to mind most easily for me is around academic content. There may be students who are a bit ahead of other students. Um, and so engaging those students and not letting them be bored while one focuses on remediation uh, is a good, you know, strategy. So, you know, can you please, you know, show us how you solve this particular problem? Allowing that student to have the stage, you know, but not leaving that student alone where if that student goes up there and they make a mistake, you know, putting the onus on the class to make sure that that student is able to see things all the way through. So we're not going to leave our uh, buddy Johnny hanging in the front of the classroom. So you know what, you know, who has something to say? Who can like lend him a hand and give him a hint and give him a clue right now, you know? Yeah we all work together to solve this problem because we're getting to this destination together. And so that's, that's one way. But also expertise does not have to always do with content knowledge. Sometimes it's about knowledge about the world. So there's different ways of knowing. We can know things emotionally, 
you know, we can know things, you know, um, you know, academically. We can also just bring different ways of uh, cultural knowing inside of the classroom. So the different ways a group might solve a problem, um, different ways uh, students might even cook or prepare food at home, um, you know, different music that we listen to. Uh, what source or, or information source did you hear that information from? Right. These different ways of knowing provide us with uh, different ways to reach students and also sharing their knowledge systems that they bring to a problem. So whether it's them helping to provide context, them solving a problem, or them you know, providing um, larger implications of uh, the real world um, implications of what we're learning in class, there's opportunities from beginning to end to engage students' expertise and knowledge systems. Okay, so it's more on the teacher to sort of be aware that the different students in her classroom or his classroom have different backgrounds and areas of expertise that they're bringing to bear and then sort of creating an environment where everybody is contributing and we're working together as, as kind of a whole group toward a goal, cool. academic or emotional. Absolutely. So let me add to that, you know, by just saying, just even the idea of usefulness and thinking about when am I going to use this in my life, these answers to that question don't always have to be teacher generated. But I as a student might not know why this information might be useful in my life, but my peer might. So student generated uh, recommendations for how this information could be useful can also go a long way. And it's more likely to stick when it comes from somebody who's learning with you than just from your, your teacher. Is there a particularly at-risk group in terms of the impact that feelings of belonging have? on academic performance? Um, well, I, I don't want to frame it as one group that is particularly at risk, but I do want to provide some trends. So what we see developmentally is that, you know, students when they're in ele elementary school, we see them, you know, exhibiting, you know, higher amounts of motivation. But when they hit middle school, their motivation tends to decline. So there's something about that transition from elementary to middle school uh, where you're going from mainly one teacher or maybe a couple to about four different subjects that are core subjects and you have your elective courses. You don't have as much face time with one particular teacher. And so, you know, we see a lot of dips in their motivation, but we also see steeper declines in motivation around students of color. And so this is explained in part by their experiences of belonging. Yeah, middle school is tough, um, for sure, for a lot of reasons. So we've touched a little bit on this, um, but in, particularly in, let's say, a middle school or a high school situation where, as a teacher, you don't spend as much time with individual students as you do in an elementary situation. What are some like good core strategies um, to foster a sense of belonging for all of your students? Yeah, so there's a couple of things that, that uh, educators can do. Um, one of the biggest things that we can do is decenter teacher authority, right? And provide opportunities for agency where students can express uh, their perceptions of the direction of and pace of the learning environment. The, the flexible use of time is probably the most valuable thing uh, the teacher can have control over and, and do to allow students to feel like they belong. When students feel rushed or they have to get on to, to a certain topic, it can make students feel like it's on me that I didn't 
catch the information in time, you know. Um, another way that time is used flexibly is around different strategies that educators may use. Let's take this idea of communalism, which I define as serving the community, uh, serving humanity and preserving different life forms like plants, animals, and human beings, um, or serving one another in the classroom. Well, uh, a teacher can provide communal learning opportunities to you know, his or her students, and, um, you know, but it might not look the same in every lesson. So if we look across an instructional unit, there may be opportunities to do so on day one by like just framing up front before we jump into any of the new material. Let's just stop and ask the purposeful question of how is this going to improve the lives of people who I see every day and that I care about, right? Um, another way that, you know, educators can uh, work on this is by allowing students to engage in activities first and then push the point of communalism once they get into the activity to help them generate ideas for how they can use this information that they're learning to be assets to their community. And now, you know, the one thing that I want to say is that time is critical here because um, opportunities to um, frame things in terms of communalism or scaffold communalism may not present themselves in every lesson. So you gotta make sure it's dynamic, back and forth between what the students are giving and what opportunities that you see in the classroom for uh, supporting communalism. So it sounds more as though um, if you're fostering not just a kind of top-down sort of model of education where the teacher is, you know, super head person in charge, but making it a little bit more collaborative with the students, that goes a long way toward fostering this sense of belonging. Absolutely. Just to build on that, when I think about belonging, it necessarily involves me and others. But when I think about the way sometimes classroom assignments or schools can be structured, we can really promote the notion of individualism uh, from what, you know, do you understand? What do you know? Which there, there's a time and place for that, right? It can be difficult to emphasize the notion of communalism inside of a school because you also have to scaffold a sense of weakness inside of a school, right? You can't just assume that students will work together magically by pr uh, putting them in groups. You have to let them know, hey, look, I'm gonna give you one of these materials, one of these materials, and one of these materials. You all get in there and work together and figure it out. Each one of you has a critical element that you need to solve this particular problem. Or, you know, uh, how come, you know, you have your head down on the desk and your other students are still working in your group? Well, already finished. Well, how is it that you could be finished and you didn't lend a helping hand to the people around you? You know, uh, what does that say? You know, so these types of signals and scaffolds allow students to really tap in to the notion of weakness and think collectively about the way they can, they can help other people. And the way I personally use it when I work directly with young people is I tell them that not only, you know, am I a researcher, but people also call me from other places as a consultant. And as a consultant, what I'm typically doing is providing feedback to others. So not only is this a, a skill that you should develop because it's just helpful to serve other people, but it, there's also value in this where you can feed your family by learning how to be a great helper to other people. And people seek out, seek out people who are a great help. Okay. 
Now, the research that we're talking about here today was conducted primarily with middle school students, mm -hmm. correct? Because they were the ones where you see the decline from elementary. Um, do you have any plans to maybe follow this cohort through high school? Do you have any data on whether um, belonging and academic performance level out after middle school, or is that a question that you would like to answer in the future? There are a couple of things to note here about this particular project. So I adopt a community-engaged philosophy when it comes to a lot of my research. So I let the issues and problems emerge from the schools that I partner with. So me and my team, we work really hard to start by listening to the schools, figuring out their assets and strengths, and what messages they really want to like work with their students on to improve students' experiences. And we custom build activities and research studies around that. So the reason why that's important is because the next study that I build, it may not be a replication of what I did the last time, because this study was based on the school coming to me and saying, we don't believe that our school climate surveys are good enough to share you know, um, quality data back with our teachers. And so we need something that is specific to the classroom and not just a school climate measure overall that our district gives out. And so uh, we were remixing and reworking, which we had student input on and teacher input on. But some of those students who are part of that particular project and were giving feedback are now in high school. So now they're uh, research team members with me. And one of them is even presenting next week at NC State um, at our research exchange. We have a research cafe on the topic of belonging. He's going to give the opening keynotes. So, um, you know, we like to keep them engaged, but, you know, not just as um, participants or subjects, but as partners and who have their own voice and who should lead the conversation on belonging. Well, that brings me to a couple of related questions. First of all, um, did the pandemic, were, were you able to measure how that might have affected like this overall belonging thing? It, it's fine if you weren't, you don't have to include that, but you know, were you able to like assess and see if the pandemic also had an impact on feelings of belonging? And is this more about um, maybe developing going forward generations of people who could maybe inform how we approach education as a whole. Yeah, so so two, you know, responses to that. The first around the pandemic is that um, we took a different approach on my team. Mm -hmm. We said rather than collecting data to see how the pandemic is impacting schools and students, let's just take a pause on collecting data altogether. We're gonna just roll up our sleeves and just ask schools, how can we help? Um, we had an opportunity to see students struggle, unfortunately, with issues of wellness. Uh, we had an opportunity to see kids wrestle with the fact that they were um, not always learning academic content that they felt reflected their own cultures. Um, and we also saw them grapple with questions around society and the mistreatment of certain cultural groups inside of society and wanting space to process that information to understand, you know, what's possible for them or what they could do to make uh, a society better in the future for people who look like them or people of other ethnic groups who might be harmed. And so, um, you know, by, by stopping the serve, we really um, got in tune with what students cared about most, most and now our interventions that we're designing moving forward 
are a lot more authentic to where students are right now. And so related to your other question, um, the, the real vision is to have students involved at every level of the research process, which is entirely different from the way most researchers conduct it, where you know, we come up with a measure, we design a study ourselves, we write a grant, and you know, if it gets funded, we go out and conduct this research on them. And so uh, by conducting it with them, we're doing two things. One, we're giving them more exposure and access to university researchers and scholars. And the second is we're providing a platform for them to share their voice and uh, their decisions on how the world should be run. One of my greatest um, uh, feelings right now is um, the call that I got from a high school student who was excited about the research that he had done, and now his principal wants him to conduct a professional development with teachers at his school based on the research that he did with us. He's already traveled to the American Educational Research Association, and he has done uh, presentations at other universities like Duke University. So, um, you know, having a different model for working directly with students on our projects has been, you know, what the pandemic has allowed us to, to pivot towards. And now we're revving up with a whole new base of, of human resources behind us in our project. Okay, that sounds really great. So it's not just students as a subject of your research, but actually involved in designing it, utilizing it, and implementing the findings in ways that will have positive impacts going forward. And that helps their peers know that whatever we're trying to research and uncover, we're after something that's going to be the real deal at the end. It's going to honor their voices and their desires for how school should be. Wonderful. Well, I always ask researchers this question in some form of another or another um, in my podcast. So what was, I like to say, the coolest thing you discovered while doing this work or the most interesting piece of this research for you? Yes, yeah, so uh, there's two things that come to mind. The first is when we uh, connected with teachers, because our partnership was mainly with administrators first, but then we said, okay, teachers get to choose the final items. So we gave them an, an item bank from of survey items based on a lot of theory on belonging. And we went to them and said, can you choose the items that you think are the most practical and relevant to your instruction. Um, but we realized that although we did this work with administrators, we had to get over the hump of mistrust and skepticism. Why? Because um, uh, surveys and measurement has have been used and weaponized against educators so much, it takes a lot of undoing and trust building first. So the idea that you know the good research that you have to do with educators requires you to slow down was a huge learning experience for our team, but it benefited us greatly. The second thing that was an aha moment actually came from our findings. What we found was that uh, by surveying students in their belonging experiences across all of their academic subjects, math, science, English, language, arts, and social studies, we found that students' engagement level, the same student, might be high in one class, low in engagement in another, high, low. Right. But what explained their dips and spikes in engagement was their opportunities to belong that their teacher was providing us out of the classroom. So what does this mean? Every time a student gets into a classroom, 
it's a new opportunity to engage their students. So when, when we talk about students being not motivated or this student is unmotivated, we're really uh, pl placing the onus uh, on the student and instead of honoring the fact that motivation also resides within the context of our learning environment. And so what we found was there's things that teachers can do within their power to address belonging vulnerability in students, even if this student has been disengaged in another classroom. So we need to disassociate students from whatever reputations they might have in another classroom. And just know that we possess the power as educators when they're in our classrooms to make them feel accepted, respected, included, and supported. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for being here today, Deleon. That has been, this has been a very interesting conversation. We've been speaking today with Deleon Gray, Associate Professor of Education Psychology and Equity here at NC State. This has been Audio Abstract. I'm your host, Tracy Peake. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you.